do you have a social responsibility to be woke even when you're getting grilled? Welcome back to another episode of Not Your Model Minority. We're your hosts, Nabila and Talasi, and today we're going to be talking about something a little different. So far, we've broadly been focusing on systemic problems in this podcast, like racism in policing, healthcare, technology, which in some form or another always seems to tie back to colonialism and patriarchy. But it's important for us to look at how colonialism, patriarchy, and racism impact us on a more personal level in our everyday lives, including sex and relationships. So since we're getting personal today, we thought it might be fitting to structure this episode as a roundtable session. And we're excited to have two guests join us today, uh, Kunal Tandon and Adrian Howard. Before I introduce them and we get started, I'm just going to throw it over to Talasi to talk a little bit about her thoughts as we were preparing for this episode. Well, I've been looking forward to doing this episode and I'm excited to hear what everyone has to say. For the past few episodes, like Nibela was just saying, we've been talking about state-inflicted violence. So shifting our discussion toward a more personal level has kind of made me return to the things that we talked about in our introductory episode where Nabila and I kind of touched on how we situate ourselves on dispossessed land as settler immigrants. And in that episode, we talked about the fact that both of us have the privilege to live and work freely on this land because of the forcible displacement of indigenous people. So I wanted to return to that today because I think it's important that this isn't lost on both of us as we continue doing this podcast. So I want to take this moment to acknowledge that the land we are on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about racial fetishism. And I'm going to let Talasi introduce the topic and really give a little bit of a background on what that is. Before that, I think I should introduce our guests, Kunal and Adrian, who we're really happy to have on this podcast, who we've been uh, lucky to know for a little while. Kunal, we've known since our undergrad days, and I think it's been 10 years now. And Adrian, I met in, in law school. So Kunal prefers he, him. He was born in India and grew up in the States in Canada. He's interested in social justice and currently works in technology and innovation. Adrian prefers he, him. He was born in Montreal, Quebec and grew up in Whitby, Ontario. He currently works as a corporate lawyer in Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So for those of you who don't know, basically a fetish is a sexual fascination with things that aren't inherently sexual. It's something that people derive sexual gratification from. So for example, some people have fetishes for feet, shoes, clowns. There's basically a fetish for pretty much everything you can think of. And this isn't inherently a bad thing. There are lots of fetishes that are totally harmless. But what happens when we fetishize people based on things like race? Is this innocuous or is it something that we should be concerned about? And that's what we'll be talking about today. 
so before we get started, I do have a number of questions for you guys to kind of get us going and engage in this discussion. But before we do that, uh, I thought I should mention that racial fetishism will probably bring up conversations that are quite serious, such as sexuality and sexual violence. So uh, listener discretion is advised. With that being said, first question to you guys. Talasi gave a little bit of a background on racial fetishism, but what does racial fetishism mean to you? Thank you both. Um, Similar to what both of you uh, sort of talked about and introduced this topic as, I think for me, it's about being treated as an object. I guess I'm using a personal me, but for me, for anybody that's being fetishized based on ethnicity, I think it's about being treated like an object and sort of othering that person uh, from uh, sort of the, the the multifaceted state that they exist in, right? We're humans, we're complex, we have personalities and a lot of different things that make us who we are. But if we focus specifically on a minute thing, like the color of my skin, right? It's not minute at all, but it should be. I'm more than that. So for me, that's sort of what it boils down to when people fetishize people based on ethnicity or, or race-based fetishization. It's the color of my skin or the cultural heritage that I have that they perceive that they seem to know, and then getting mostly sexual and personal gratification from that. Yeah, I think the way I see it, sorry, nobody asked what I think, but <laughs> going to jump in. I was thinking racial fetishization, what I think of is when you kind of fixate on a particular racial group because of stereotypes that you associate with that group. And also when you kind of won't date or have sex with anyone who doesn't fit into that particular category. So I see it as essentially racial stereotyping, but in a sexual context. What do you think, Adrian? Well, for me, I think what everybody else has said sort of captures it for the most part. Uh, The only thing I would have to add to that is that fetishization sort of goes beyond the sexual and sort of engages the idea of what it is to be, I guess, curious about somebody else who is different from you and what it is to perceive somebody else who's different from you. And I think some of the issues and problems that we might discuss may not just be relationship-based and sexual in nature, but may also engage the idea of what it means to see somebody as different from you and what it means to try to understand that kind of difference and what are the problems of boiling down that difference to perhaps a skin color or a set of cultural understandings that we have about a group of people, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think to the extent that uh, it hasn't already been covered, I think that's what I would have to add. Do you guys think, and I I feel like we'll, we'll talk about this a lot as we, as we move forward, but do you think it's, problematic just in a broad sense like what's your opinion starting off the bat is having a racial fetish a problem you know i'm not going to get into the whole if we all had agency and the philosophy behind being a human being but in the current landscape when through like colonial powers and through slavery and discrimination of people based on their skin color i, I guess even in general it is it is problematic because you like everybody said, are only hyper-focusing on what you deem to be the most important part of me without even getting to know me, you know? And it's literally based on a physical attribute, 
I mean, I'll talk a little bit more about that when it comes to the queerness and the queer community, but the fact is that you are literally looking at the pigmentation of my skin in most cases, presuming things about my my culture and my heritage, picking and choosing things that benefit you because at the end of the day, you're getting some gratification from it. There's a difference when it's something like you're trying to actually fully understand who I am as a person, and that happens to be part of the package. But if that's what you're starting off as, you know, that I only date X, Y, and Z, it, it just seems, it seems insidious to me because you're getting your feet wet because of that and not because of anything else beyond who I am as a person. I'm going to throw something out there. Does it really matter in the context of sex? I, I kind of get it in relationships and dating and you're like, I really want to, I want this person to get to know me and I want them to understand my personality. Um, this is a total devil's advocate position, by the way. But when it's about sex, and if you see sex as something strictly physical, does it matter if someone is, I guess, objectifying you? Because that is kind of what happens in, in sexual context. I'll take a shot at that with the caveat that I'd love to answer the, the original question as well at some point. I think the issue in that case, even between two possibly consenting adults, is that there is an engagement with a with a whole other history or a whole other set of cultural understandings that people have and so even if i said hey i'm okay with being objectified for the purpose of a sexual encounter the question of whether or not it it is problematic has really nothing to do with me in in a certain sense if you think about it i am enabling somebody to continue to perceive of someone of my race as an object to be engaged with in a certain way. And we can get into that in more detail, but, you know, presumably if there's a fetish, there's a reason for a fetish and presumably that's something less than what my total being is. And so engaging with that specifically and not anything else having to do with me, even if I might consent to it in the moment, that's still enabling and, and continuing a history and, and, and a pattern that, that is really damaging, I think. Sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> I, I think he agrees with me. Yeah, I think so. So, okay, why do you think that people have racial fetishes? Like, where do you think that this comes from? <laughs> I don't know. This is like, for me, this is getting into the history of like colonialism and, you know, uh, race-based discrimination. And I just think that it's similar to what even Adrian said and what everybody else said. It's it's trying to, maybe it comes from an innocent, let's say it comes from an innocent place, right? Where you're trying to understand that person and sort of their the heritage that they that they bring with them, right? But for me, it becomes insidious because are you really trying to understand that? Or are you just trying to reinforce the assumptions that you already have about that person? Um, me being brown, you assume that I like X, Y, and Z. And are you coming into it with sort of an eager mind to understand if I actually come with that? Or are you actually coming in to say, no, you know what? I already know that you like X, Y, and Z. And I love X, Y, and Z because I've only seen X, Y, and Z in media or whatever. And I'm just trying to reinforce that until I get to that person that checks my list. I've seen this happen so many times. Um, I'll give you an example. Like when I talk about coming out as an example to individuals that I meet up with, typically it's white individuals, but really anybody. Um, it hurts when it's another person of color, but it happens. You know, they'll say things like, oh, so you're out. Oh, I guess 
like you didn't suffer or all these sort of things, right? They have these assumptions about me, about how, because they know, they think that typically South Asians or Asian people or people of color have, and they do struggle, but they think that everybody struggles when they come out, when they talk to their family members. And I did, but the extent that somebody else does, it might not be the same, but it's it's like they, they have these expectations that I fit this mold, but when I sort of, don't fit that mold. They're they're excited, but it's not really an excite. It's not really like a shock or excitement in a way where it's, oh, like they're curious to understand that. It's sort of like, oh, well, you didn't fit that mold. Moving on to the next subject. Going off of what you were just saying, like I think one root of like racial fetishization is, you know, the phenomena where indigenous, black, and other racialized people are often perceived to somehow be exotic or mysterious or fascinating, you know, relative to white people, right? We're perceived as foreign and thereby somehow more desirable by extension. And I think that the desire, it kind of just, it goes away when they see that you don't really fit into that mold that you were just talking about. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I absolutely do. I was I was going to say, I think this podcast likely does this a lot, but they draw everything back to colonialism because it probably is the thing that caused everything bad that currently happens, or or at least a large percentage of those things. But I would say that in the current society that we have, there is a lot of what it means to be human and what it means to just be a regular person becomes what it means to be white. Because there is very little out there, or at least that I'm aware of, fetishizations or stereotypes around what white people are because white people are the sort of reflection of against what everybody else comes from. So a lot of what our current society is was um, the result of white people settling in other areas and saying, oh, these people are curious, or in the case of black people, going into those areas, taking them and saying, you are now property and saying, your body is now something I can use either for profit or for pleasure. and engaging with other people that way. And so it's kind of hard to even talk about this topic without thinking back to colonialism and how the, I guess, shadow of colonialism still haunts us today. The number of times I've been called exotic is like, oh my God. I remember in undergrad, I was called exotic for like the first time. And I remember it was a photo that went up on Facebook with a, a white male friend of mine. And um, he, he has a history of dating racialized women, by the way. So um, when the photo went up, one of his friends was like, oh, my God, you and your exotic girls. And I, I was like, what the heck? Because I've never seen myself as exotic. I've grown up here my entire life. And I remember feeling really weird about it and like kind of offended but I couldn't explain it at the time as to why I was offended but slowly that's when I started to realize I'm like yeah it's because it's it's the white people standard right like the status quo is to like the the white woman and then from there anything beyond that is considered exotic and othered and I was part of that other which is a kind of dehumanizing I'll share some personal stories I grew up mostly in the suburbs. As you guys said, I grew up in Whitby and of Montreal. I grew up in a um, Anglophone area of Montreal that was mostly a suburb. And my experiences, unfortunately, didn't start in undergrad. I just remember, even before this became a relationships kind of thing, I would be in school as a young 
as a young kid and people would be like, Hey, can I come feel your hair? And then I remember sometime it was some, uh, it was a French Canadian, um, kid once told me, yeah, your hair feels like, like sheep skin. I was what? like, I was like, what? And it was like, really? And that kind of thing would go across. Right. I remember in middle school and early high school, the whole, we were in the, uh, gangster rap era. And so everybody had to be a certain type of black and people were like, well, you know, is you don't quote this rap lyrics. Do you freestyle? Are you good at basketball, et cetera, et cetera. Do you do X number of things? If not, then I don't think you're black enough or those kinds of things. And even though those things don't specifically fit within the sex and relationships talk, it sort of talk, speaks to the idea of people being essentialized into a certain thing or experience people trying to boil down your existence into a certain small box. That's terrifying that you went through that. Um, I never went through that to the same extent that you did, right? Not to minimize that, obviously. I think it's just interesting because what you're talking about also sets the stage for racialized people, especially Black and Indigenous people, right, to meet a standard that is set by the white narrative. So, and then you start thinking like that too, right? You're like, oh, but should, like, why am I not desired in that way? Why am I not being desired, right? And because at the end of the day, all I'm being looked at is based on my skin color and the presumptions that come with my skin color, right? So it also, it also almost becomes a rat race where this happens all the time. I'm not sure if anybody else has experienced this, but at least at least in the queer community, it's like a rat race of microaggressions between the same ethnic group to try to beat each other, to be the, the fetish, to be uh, the prize that should be won by the white gaze uh, or another individual that is expecting certain things from us. Okay, so so far we've talked a bit about fetishization outside of the sexual and dating context, but have any of you guys had any experiences where you were fetishized in the dating or sexual context? So luckily I haven't had maybe what people would say are some of the more horrifying types of fetishization experiences, but I have when going out with or speaking with non-black women had the experience of somebody telling me, well, I really like you and I only date black guys. And my first thing to say is why? I mean, getting back to what being black means, I always start thinking about, well, is it a part of my physical anatomy that you're into? Is it my particular skin color? I hope not because there's a bunch of different shades of black people and people in my shade or even darker than my shade come in non-black as well. Is there a particular cultural aspect of my experience that you think um, applies to me. And so you say, okay, that's something that we want. That might be the case, but then again, black people are all over the world. And so if you were to say, Hey, I think black people in hip hop culture is so great. You again, that's not the uniform experience of black people across the spectrum. And I start thinking through all of those things. And I always ask why, and I don't think I've ever really gotten a good answer to that question because sometimes I have actually explicitly asked that question. And the only one that I uh, think that I was uh, partially impressed with was, well, only black guys date me. And I was like, well, I guess so. <laughs> but otherwise, there was really no other reason, you know, all the, well, I think black men are cooler 
or, you know, black men have a certain type of swag. I was, I was like, well, I don't understand what that means. Where, what are we referring to? Is there, what image are you drawing this from? And how many black people have you been around to be able to substantiate this? And it, it always makes me uncomfortable, frankly. Do you feel like having those types of interactions demands like a particular type of performance from you? And I don't mean just like sexual performance, but like as a person, like you have to perform in a certain way and be performative. Do you feel the pressure to be performative? Um, perhaps at a certain time, I felt some pressure to perform a certain type of blackness. And it, it's not often in the, in the relationships context. There's definitely elements and times where people would say, you know, I would expect you to have a great rhythm. You know, you're a black guy, you know, you should, you should be able to dance really well. And it's like, well, I mean, I think I dance all right, but that has, I don't think that has anything to do with me being black. And if you spoke to my family as I was growing up, I was not one of the best dancers there was. And so it's, it's those kinds of things. Oh, are you musical? Are you athletic? Can you play sport? All those different kinds of things that people would demand, I might engage with that and I might have engaged with that at some point in my life in certain circumstances. But I sort of have gotten to the point where I sort of reject all that and I say, well, why are you asking this from me? And, you know, what are you getting out of this? Because I don't really feel the pressure to be what you want me to be at this point in my life, at least. What about you, Cornell? I know you talked a little bit earlier about feeling pressure to perform in a particular way to live up to that fetishized perception. But have you had any personal experiences where you were fetishized that you feel comfortable talking about? Yeah, um, I'd like to talk about it from like a personal perspective, but then also sort of like generally from like a queer community perspective. Also prefacing this by saying that I don't represent the entire queer community and I'm not like a researcher, but just through observations and and, and sort of uh, meandering in and out. So personally, 100%, I felt that. When it comes to fetishes, it's always about the skin color. It's like, oh, you know, I love your brown skin or... Um, you know, I wish I was that brown, you look so hot, you know, all these sort of things, right? It always, it always sort of distills back to exotifying that beautiful, you know, caramel skin. And it's typically, from my perspective, done by white cis queer men. We'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, it's typically done through that. Um, and it's often also grouped together with other brown people. Like there's South Americans who look like my like skin color. There's Arab people who look like my skin color. There's different types of people. But we're always clumped into one sort of category because we we represent one shade from that perspective. This kind of like points to like a deeper issue uh, in the queer community. I think from the outside, a lot of people think we're so accepting and and yeah, there's a lot of love and acceptance, but there's a lot of negativity. And, you know, this is my theory only, but, you know, you have a bunch of mostly, you know, um, uh, men who, who, think of themselves as men, right? And are cis men typically who, we already in our community have labels for each type of man that exists, right? Including men that exist outside of the queer community. We have labels for straight men too. And that's just horrifying. Labels for friends who are friends of queer men. So 
when we've sub-labeled and sub-categorized people literally based on physical attributes coming from how big you are, how skinny you are, how hairy and not hairy you are. Like these are the, these are the categories that we deal with. You're so fetishized to begin with that you cannot think outside of those categories. The fact that our dating apps reinforce those categories. Like there are words that are in the dating apps that are called tribes and they're literally based on physical attributes. Okay, there's one called Twink, which is literally a hairless white man. There's one called Otter, which is a hairy skinny man, which is me. There's one called Bear, which is a bigger hairy man. Like, And these are three, are probably 30 categories that exist at least in, in our community, right? So you see it from a personal level, which I experience every single day where I have to perform to be something else. And you also see it from a general level where right off the bat, when you log in and you're part of the community and you're sort of like in the community, you are judged right away based on which of these categories that you fit. Typically, brown and East Asian people have an expectation to be subservient. We have to follow those roles. So, you know, and that also then goes down to what role we play in bed. That's another topic on its own, but typically Black individuals are seen as alpha males that possess certain qualities that are physical that everybody knows it. I don't want to say it, but everybody knows it. They have that expectation of Black male. So it's it's so entrenched in at least a queer male culture um, that it's actually really hard to not be an object. Like you are always an object. And there are categories for straight men. And there's another thing about queer men fetishizing straight men to be more like masculine, you know, because we always deal with the duality, this made up duality of masculinity and femininity, right? So there's so, so many layers of fetishization. You act like, yeah. And then queer men wonder, and I'm not trying to hate and rant, they wonder why they're not in relationships because all we do is categorize based on physical attributes. Why, how are we going to find successful relationships that way? I honestly didn't even know about all of those subcategories. So that kind of leads to our our second topic. Essentially, a lot of people, when you talk about racial fetishes, they'll refer to it as a preference as opposed to a fetish. So they'll say, well, you know, my my liking for Black men or Asian women is simply a preference and it's not as insidious as you're making it out to be. I don't know. Like, do you do you think those are comparable? Like, I feel like you know, in these in these apps, these physical descriptions or whatever, these categories that you fit into, a lot of people might defend it as, oh, it's just a preference. I like skinny, tall men. I like otters, whatever, right? So as the cis heterosexual man on the podcast, I've noticed in the past, probably like anybody else, I, you know, have had, you know, certain bodily features that I would say, hey, I'm attracted to this kind of person with this kind of body or this kind of feature in terms of facial features and and things of that nature. And I've noticed that in the past, I would sort of boil that down to, well, nobody from this race or this or this culture has those kinds of features. So I'm, I'm out on this, you know, set of people altogether. And as a first item, I've realized over the course of my life that physical attributes are probably a little bit less important in relationships than I first thought. And so people all have their really idealized body type, which is probably based on socialization and the, the media images that we see. But once you get to know somebody, I think you can have 
just as much attraction to somebody who may not fit that stereotypical body type that you say that you're into because of the connection that you have with that person. And not only that, I've now probably lived long enough to outlast all of the stereotypes that I may have had. And so you say, oh, well, I just don't like this type of person. Then you see a type of person, you're like, oh man, that person's really attractive. And you're like, well, I guess uh, I was wrong about that stereotype. So all, all that to say, hey, I'm admitting fault on the, the preference kind of thing. But I think as time goes by and as people may mature, you find out that first of all, people aren't just a assembly of body parts and, and facial features. And then secondly, body parts and facial features, especially with the uh, cosmetic surgery that's available these days can be changed. And, you know, anybody of any race or any ethnicity could probably end up fitting in with the type that you thought was super attractive. Also, like, I don't know if I would say that having a preference is inherently a bad thing, because I think a lot of people have preferences to some degrees, right? Some people prefer people who have, I don't know, blue eyes or a particular height. But eye color is just eye color, same with height. You know, there's nothing inherently good or bad associated with having a particular color in terms of your eyes. But then like Adrian was saying, when someone says that they have a preference, quote unquote, for a particular race, but why? That it leads to that question like people belonging to a particular racial group they're not a monolith they don't all look the same and they don't also have all of the the physical attributes that you associate with that racial group right so i don't think that having a preference for for height or for a particular hair color is the same thing as having a quote-unquote preference for race because i think the latter will almost always lead into fetishization Honestly, I feel like, and I'm just going to push back on that a little bit because I feel like it brings us back to our initial point where everything leads back to colonialism and patriarchy. So as I was preparing for this episode, I was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with liking blue eyes and like someone who's taller. But I feel like every single one of those standards and those preferences lead back to like white supremacy or masculinity, right? Like what we believe to be masculine. A lot of women prefer tall men because that's what they believe is is masculine and they prefer men who fit that stereotype of being masculine so shorter men are kind of like then they turn in cell or whatever wow nabila we went there okay and <laughs> feeling a little salty okay um and then with like eye color too right like it seems so innocuous but then when you hear someone who's like i like people with blue eyes and blonde hair right and you're automatically like okay where is that coming from if we're talking about blue eyes and blonde hair, then my mind goes immediately somewhere else. But you know what? Like a lot of people, at least within like the South Asian culture, they'll be like, oh, blue eyes are so beautiful, right? Like any eye color that is not brown is considered so beautiful. And that still goes back to the white supremacy, colonialism, like the white people. It's like, like you were saying, the mirror that we judge ourselves. I'm going to push back on the colonialism bit a little bit like i'm not saying that it, it's not right or whatever right it, it didn't exist of course we live in a post-colonial world right but i think throughout history when you look at preferences through different cultures i think it's based entirely on the dominant voice that existed in that culture or set of cultures around the world there have been many big colonial powers throughout the world that were not just white throughout history i'm not going to go to the history lesson but there have been and there have been preferences set throughout history like there were preferences about larger women in the past, right? In certain cultures, because that was deemed as more fertile. 
now we're back in fetishizing around black women uh, with specific biological traits that might exist in certain ethnic groups. And we're trying to emulate those things. So I agree that in the guise of like where we live now, it is probably under uh, a colonial world with white supremacy being the underlying factor. But throughout history, I, I think preferences have changed based on which culture might have the dominant feature that somebody's reaching out towards, right? Or, or, or wanting to inherit. So going off what you were just saying, Kunal, because we're going into the, the beauty standards realm. So racialized people, I, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I certainly have. We often feel invisible and overlooked in white spaces. But at the same time, the things that we're fetishized for are usually attributes that society has taught us are undesirable, right? So we're sort of simultaneously erased or dehumanized and also fetishized. So what do you think happens when someone from a socially dominant group that is considered the ideal by conventional beauty standards, so white people, desires someone who isn't? Like, how does how do you think this plays into how we, as racialized people, feel when we're being fetishized? So I feel like this is the point where I get to... Uh speak about um, what I've been told by black women who've had this kind of experience, because I think the, the experience of black men it, with regard to this topic is completely different from the experience of black women. And I've had some black women that I've dated and some that I haven't, and I'm just friends with say, we just don't expect to be desired by people. And if we are desired, sometimes we are just desired as a curiosity. And that ends up being something that's that's difficult for them to process because they'll say, hey, well, you know, white women tend to be the beauty standards or lately they may have this racially ambiguous women tend to be the beauty standard. Black women tend to be sort of thrown to the wayside. And so they'll say, well, black men are going after the latest thing. And white men, of course, were also going after the latest thing. And so who's there for us? And I, I just feel like that's important to highlight because you know, my experience as a black man may be that certain people may want to engage with black men as a sort of curiosity, as a fetish. But at the end of the day, I don't think I've ever had problem finding black women who also wanted to engage with me and engage with me in a way that I felt comfortable with. Whereas there are issues for black, for some black women on, on, on that. You know, what's messed up is Telassi and I were talking about this, how, you know, historically black women weren't viewed as the the standard like the beauty standard in terms of like the the race that was desired and now all these white women are trying to look black and these features that weren't initially desired are now considered desirable but on white women that's so messed up I didn't know about this before like prepping for this episode it's like I was living under a rock but I had no idea about blackfishing have you guys heard of blackfishing before no, what is black fishing? Okay, so there are all these Instagram influencers and models who are white, but they've been kind of passing as black or racially ambiguous on their social media feed. And it's like, I don't know, they like put heavy bronzer or they like tan really hardcore. Like it looks like their skin is burnt and um, they wear braids or, or curl their hair. And there's this one, the one that's really well known is Emma Halberg. And for the longest time, apparently so many people thought she was black or at least mixed. 
And there were like websites that were like featuring her as like part of like the top like black influencers. She didn't correct people. And then it came out that she was actually white. And when she was questioned about it, she's like, I just tan really easily. And that's why I come off the way I do. And it's crazy to me that there are white women who are making this popular, whereas like there are black influencers out there, right? And they're taking up that space. And they're profiting off this. Like, I have to bring this up because since we're talking about appropriating black culture, we have to talk about the Kardashians. I mean, I am not one of those people who like to engage in the usual criticism of them because I think a lot of it is rooted in misogyny. But I think it's incredibly fair to say that they're all culture vultures. They've made millions of dollars of pretending to be black. Right. And, and the same with this Instagram model, Emma Hallberg or whatever her name is. Right. They're profiting They're They have millions of followers and they're making money of it. And the worst part, too, is that I think even beyond Instagram in the fashion industry and beauty industry in general, it, it's it's kind of like it's very in now to look racially ambiguous. You know, um, I don't know if you guys know about this, me and Nabila were talking about this, but right now the latest trend in beauty is quote unquote fox eyes. Fox eyes is basically this phenomenon where primarily Caucasian women, they try to make their eyes look more almond shape. Um, so they shave off part of their eyebrows to make them more straight. And then they put on makeup in order to make them look basically more slanted. So what they're really trying to do is emulate the shape of you know, Asian women, right? And the messed up thing is that like these white women are trying to emulate, um, you know, the the body of black women and the eye shape of Asian women. But at the same time, there is no space for actual black women or actual Asian women in these spaces in order to make money or just generally be, you know, considered attractive. I was also looking at, you know, that photo that Kim Kardashian took in 2014, the one where she broke the internet. Um, so reading about it, it was like a recreation of a photo from 1976 of a black woman named uh, Carolina Beaumont. Um, and that, that photo was featured in a photo book called Jungle Fever, where it featured a bunch of different black women in very sexually suggestive and animalistic poses. And the fact that Kim Kardashian like engaged in this photo shoot that has this like very problematic history, like it goes to show like how she's profiting off this history, right? Off like the objectification and racial fetishism of, of black women, whereas she's not, she doesn't have to carry the weight of, of being a black woman. Um, well, I mean, not to, you know, try to take this episode off topic, but as I said at the beginning, I think there's always a lot that goes out of like sex and relationships and into, you know, how do we perceive other people and, you know, how do we experience other people? Because, I mean, all this stuff that we're talking about sort of goes back to how do I experience or deal with other people or people of another race and, how do I sort of boil that down to something essential? And then how do I take it and use it? And, and so there's always this sort of idea that we can, you know, take what we like out of that and take the curious part of, 
you know, a black person and take that, uh, take it for ourselves or go and take the exotic part of somebody who's from another, um, who's from another ethnicity and again, appropriate and make it something that's ours as well. And, and that's really, I guess, the most disturbing part of this because all I was thinking about for the last like five to seven minutes of our conversation was this sounds a whole hell of a lot like blackface, but in a different way. Yeah, it's the it's the modern blackface, right? Blackfishing is the modern blackface. And since somebody brought up the Kardashians, I'd like to mention the string of black men they've dated and uh, have put on their show uh, and have made money off of, et cetera, et cetera. I just thought I'd just leave that there. I would actually say it's just it's just modern colonialism, right? Because um, I'll kind of go back to some of the things that happened in the queer community, but we all know drag race. We love our drag culture. It's beautiful. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to go into the power structures of that, but uh, the big thing that was happening in, or is, or happens in drag culture is that um, it's primarily dominated by white, uh, white men or uh, non-binary white people who, uh, typically emulate women, right, uh, to for entertainment or whatever. Um, and oftentimes it's black women that they emulate. Um, and you're, you're thinking, well, RuPaul's Drag Race, that's a black man, you know, running the show and he's the dominant voice of, but he's also been criticized because of other things that, that have been happening. But I guess the point is that you see this everywhere. And, and it, for me, it's like, modern day colonialism because of what you said you're taking attributes and things that exist in a certain culture um and yeah you can come at me by saying well who who has what and what belongs to what and whatever right but the the issue the thing is that in north america there are cultural differences between different racialized and ethnic groups that exist and the the issue is that these individuals because of their differences have always been discriminated against but now we're using these these uh things that we found hilarious or beneath us as ways to profit from that so since we've been talking about um fetishizing racialized people one of the worst and most well-known historical examples of uh, fetishizing a person is the case of Sarki or Sarah Bartman. So she was a South African woman who was basically exhibited at freak show attractions, uh, which is what they used to call them, against her will in Europe in the 19th century. And she was put on display by European people because of her body. Basically, she had a large butt, which I guess fine white folks have been horrified and obsessed with since the beginning of time. And after she died, um, a museum in Europe actually put parts of her body on display, including her genitalia. And her remains were only repatriated to South Africa in 2002. Can we just talk about how like big butts were in after non-Black women made a thing of it? I remember reading in, I think it was September 2014, Vogue announced that we were officially in the era of the big butt. <laughs> and at the time, um, that song came out by Iggy Azalea and um, I think it was J-Lo. But you realize like the the women who popularized the like big butts are like J-Lo, Iggy Azalea, 
I think what's also sort of terrifying is that when these perspectives are internalized by other racialized people of color, um, because this happens all the time, right? Where because white narrative is a dominant narrative, you cannot avoid it. It's everywhere. So you grow up with those those perspectives and then you internalize those perspectives thinking that you are becoming or you, you, you can have that dominant power. And as a result, then you start fetishizing people who are racialized like you or might be different from you and 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 start to reinforce those those stereotypes and perspectives as well. I mean, this happens, I've seen this with my friends who say stuff, who are racialized too. I see this with colleagues, you know, and it's really insidious because it then normalizes that behavior where they are in fact, we're just objects at the end. So what do you guys think about this? So essentially, what are your thoughts about people who don't have an issue with being fetishized? So in terms of agency, I think agency is always difficult. And um, I'm going to preface this in saying that these thoughts are my own. And uh, I, I don't uh, claim to be an expert on anything here because I feel like, you know, this, this gets tricky. But I think um, when we talk about agency, I think agency is something that you can exercise for yourself. And agency is a positive thing. But there are still other realities in the world that exist regardless of your agency. And so I think about it um, with respect to people doing things like using the N-word. You might give all your white friends permission to call you the N-word, and that may be fine for you. That exists outside of the reality that there is a real problematic, you know, there's real problems around the use of the N-word um, generally, and especially by um, white people. And, and so, just because you have decided as a person not to be offended or not to take offense um, by somebody using this or doing something to you doesn't mean that outside of your personal agency, there isn't a problem about it. So, you know, um, this sort of brings me back to all the nightmare stories of people, you know, doing something seen as racially insensitive or, or you know, frankly, just racist. And then they say, well, you know, I have black friends who always permit me to do whatever this thing is. And then other people say, well, I don't care. I'm not your black friend. Um, so I still have a problem with it. And generally speaking, it's a problem because it engages with a history and a pattern of behavior. I feel like I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop. What if someone... In a strictly sexual context, casual sexual encounter, for instance, are two people just playing devil's advocate. I don't necessarily endorse this, but just putting it out there. Uh, are you not mutually kind of unilaterally imposing sexual fantasies onto each other? Um, if you're both aware of that and you don't care, alternatively, maybe you are into that. Is that okay? Like, is that wrong? Do you have a social responsibility to be woke even when you're getting grailed? Um, again, I mean, and um, so that we don't uh, get ourselves called social justice warriors more than necessary, I think people can do whatever they want. But to, to the extent that you do whatever you want, there, there are implications and consequences to what you do. And so... To say, hey, I can do whatever I want in my private life, that's absolutely true, and I support everybody's right to do whatever they want in their private life. However, um, knowing where that may come from 
and knowing that there may be some issues and there may be some historical uh, themes that you're drawing on when you're doing a certain thing. As long as you know that, I mean, I can't really control your private life and, you know, I'm not really interested in doing so. So it's important to talk about fetishization because as almost everything else in life, it has real implication. Very often, like we've touched on, racial fetishization basically reduces someone to a body, which dehumanizes people. And once you dehumanize someone, it perpetuates and justifies violence, including sexual violence against them. For example, when slavery still existed in Canada, white people didn't believe that black women could be raped. And this idea is was very much tied in with white society's hypersexualization and simultaneous dehumanization of black women. And unfortunately, black women are still at disproportionate risk of being sexually assaulted today. And many of you may have noticed that they've been pretty left out of the Me Too movement, for instance, which ironically was actually created by a black woman. So these really disgusting ideas about black female sexuality still exist today. And the hypersexualization of black men is also dangerous because this has historically been tied to stereotypes about um, black men's allegedly so-called uncontrollable sex drives and that they are to be feared, that they're apparently rapists and that they're a danger to white women's virtue. And the stereotype that black men are sexual predators is one of the many, many, many factors that has led to them being over-policed and um, disproportionately incarcerated and murdered. And fetishization of trans and intersex people and other members of the queer community is also one of the many reasons that contribute to the disproportionate violence that they're subjected to. And it's the same for indigenous women um, who report sexual assaults at a rate, I think, three times higher than non-indigenous people. So it's insidious at an individual level, like we've all kind of been talking about. But fetishization, it also it essentially becomes a tool of oppression, subjugation, and dehumanization, so it's not innocuous. And like Kunal and Adrian were talking about earlier too, it also creates unrealistic expectations of other people and it imposes racialized um, stereotypes on them. So thank you so much, Kunal and Adrian, for coming on today. I think uh, this was such an interesting discussion. Um, and I'm sure like we would love to have you on uh, again in the future. Um, and with that being said, um, thank you for listening. And as always, stay critical and stay engaged. Not Your Model Minority is hosted by Nabila Khan and Talasi Kandia. Special thanks to Himmel Kandiker, Simran Dillon, and Kunal Tandon for helping us produce this podcast. Our theme music is by Pink Marble. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NYMM Podcast. You can also visit our website, notyourmodelminority.ca, to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice, such as Apple or Spotify, as well as find accessible versions of our episodes. Thanks for listening.